4. Nehemiah chapter 4. Almost right in the middle of our, of our Old Testament. Nehemiah chapter 4. And we've, we've had a couple weeks hiatus, um, but when we were last in this study, we saw really the beginning of their work, sort of getting to work on the wall, getting to work on restoring the security uh, and the safety of the city of Jerusalem. And it really began without any significant opposition. We have some people who are not interested in working, and we've kind of looked through some of that. But in general, really, things begin well, and the work begins in earnest. But that's going to change as we get to chapter 4. And if you just look at the sort of subtitle there, it was probably in your English text, you'll see there's something suggesting that there's some opposition coming, and indeed there is. Um, And it's going to be enough to sort of put their mission in jeopardy. Is this project going to continue? It's not clear. Are they going to be able to move forward? Are they going to be able to accomplish what they've set out? Nehemiah has come all the way um, from the, Pers- the heart of the Persian Empire back here. He's given so much, so many people have sacrificed, but the whole mission is sort of in jeopardy at this moment. And so tonight's study actually intersects with what we have seen in our study of 1 Thessalonians. Two Sundays ago, I preached a sermon called Satanic Opposition, or Obstruction, I think, actually. Satanic Obstruction, speaking about spiritual warfare. And last week, we alluded to that again, speaking about the tempter and the work that Satan does to tempt and to obstruct in that way. And we're going to see some of that tonight, more so in the background, though. Um, Very often, um, spiritual warfare in the New Testament can be in the foreground. They'll talk about it more openly. In the Old Testament, there are times where it is in the foreground, but very often it's in the background, and I think that is the case with our text tonight. But T.J. Uh, Betts, who's a commentator and one of our seminary professors at one of our Southern Baptist seminaries, he says this about the text, and I think he makes the point well. He says, the powers of darkness will not sit idly while the people of God rise to build, whether they are building a wall, as in Nehemiah's day, or building Christ's kingdom, as we are called today. So many centuries have passed since the time of Nehemiah, And yet, in some sense, the spiritual war that wages has not changed. Time has passed since the time of the New Testament to our time. Time stretched between the time of Nehemiah to the New Testament. And yet, some things remain the same in terms of the way the adversary would seek to oppose the things of God. And so what we see here in the text, and what we're going to see the next couple weeks, and we're looking at chapter 4 in two parts, uh, kind of right in the half. We'll look at the first 14 verses tonight. What we'll see here is not only that we should expect the possibility, the potential of opposition, spiritual opposition, um, even if that spiritual opposition comes in the form of physical opposition as well. Not only that we should expect it any time that we're doing the Lord's work, but also how we should respond to it. So on one hand, we should expect it. There's awareness of that, but then also, how then do we respond? And we'll be looking at both of those things tonight and God willing, next week. So let's read the text together. Chapter four, beginning in verse one. Now when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews, and and he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? When will they finish? Or will they finish up in a day? Will they receive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and the burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, What are they building? If a fox goes up on the wall, it will break down their stone wall. Hear, O God, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt. So now this is Nehemiah speaking in verse 4 to the opposition. Turn back their taunt in his prayers. 
Turn it on their heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Verse 6. So we, build, we built the wall. So it's in past tense. He's saying we already, we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height. So they're about the halfway point. For the people had a mind to work. But, verse 7, when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls in Jerusalem was going forward and that the, uh, the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Verse 9, very important. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them night and day. In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burden is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said they will not know uh, or see till we come among them and kill them and stop their work. So you see there's an escalation here. Verse 12, At that time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and open places, I station the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So a rousing speech there at the end. So let's go back to the beginning and just work our way through. So in those first three verses or so, basically news of Nehemiah's progress got around to their enemies. And what's their response? Well, they're furious. I mean, it's even sort of redundant the way he says it there. They were angry and greatly enraged. That's the way that this is written in Hebrew originally. It's the way you emphasize by basically piling up these things instead of saying very angry. You might say, and oftentimes it's even more redundant when you hear it in the original language, but it's emphasis. They were furious. They were animated in their anger. And um, Sanballat, that first name there, is the first critic to be mentioned. He doesn't want to see them succeed with their, their mission. He's absolutely opposed to them, not just as an ideology, not just in his heart, and he's opposed for reasons that are quite personal, quite um, selfish unto himself. And it's basically the fact that a, a secure and a healthy and a prosperous Jerusalem threatens his bottom line. They become a military threat. In other words, they're competition. So, little, so these little mini kingdoms in the ancient world were all at competition and in competition with each other. And so they're quite glad for Jerusalem to be a wreck. And if it's sort of a, a limping along, sort of you've got a few people moving back, they're in the temple, as long as it's not a thriving city, it's not a threat. But if they succeed, Israel, or Jerusalem, that is, becomes a threat in his mind. And so he's absolutely opposed to it for these, these selfish reasons that have to do with his own power and his own wealth. Notice in these first six verses how the opposition begins. Notice it begins verbally with words. This is nearly always the case, that opposition like, like this begins first with words. And, and I, wonder, I wonder why that is. Any, any thoughts on why that is, why that is that, that opposition like this? We see it's going to escalate, but why, why begin with words? Any thoughts? I'm, I'm, I'm not talking so much about this instant, but just like human, human mind and our own hearts. Like, why is that? 
Yeah. I think that I think that's right. It is. Yeah. Sort of comes natural, right? Our own passions. And it doesn't take that much of us, does it? I mean, just to say a few words. I mean, to illustrate it, that's, that's why like, social media can become so toxic. Because what does it take to type a few nasty words? Not that much. You don't know them. You're probably never going to see them in person. If you do know them, there's, you're separated by a, you know, sort of this digital division. And so it doesn't take that much. And so people can be really nasty on social media. I have a lot of friends who are like, I'm done getting off Twitter. I'm getting off Facebook, whatever. And, uh, and even for myself, I, I'm on there less than I was a few years ago. Um, because people are willing to say almost anything, because it, it, talk is cheap, right? It doesn't, it doesn't take that much out of us. But as we see, it's actually quite menacing, though. Just because it takes little from the person doesn't mean that it's not an effective way to tear down. So what, what is he criticizing here? He's criticizing their strength. He's criticizing their resources. You're not good enough. There's no way you're going to do this. And then he's sort of got, so this guy, Tobiah the Ammonite, kind of joins in. He's almost like his lackey. Um, you know, he's sort of there, and he's like, yeah, yeah, let's get them. These guys, they're terrible, and he's sort of agreeing with them. It, it makes me think of uh, the Christmas story, and you've got the menacing bully, the little redhead guy, and then he's got his little lackey, right, who's there with him. Like every movie you've got that, you've got the, 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 the bad guy, and you've got the guy who's sort of his lackey. I sort of picture that. I don't know if Tobiah would like that. He, he might have been a very menacing guy in and of himself. I don't know. But that's the way it appears. And so he says the same thing, that their work will be so poor that even a little fox, he said, like you know, we might say, even a squirrel is going to run across that and it's going to fall down. That's how poor of a job these, these Jews are doing. So he's, he's criticizing them. In verses 4 through 6, when the initial criticism rose, um, Nehemiah and the people do two things. Did you catch what they were? Two things. And the first one is this. They prayed. All kinds of nasty things thrown at them, all kinds of accusations undermining their competency, their strength, their ability, their determination, their heart, right? And what do they do? They, they prayed. And this is just a reminder to us that throughout the ages, God's people have learned to fight on their knees. We've learned that our greatest weapon is not a weapon that we wield with our hand, but rather prayer interceding from our hearts, like we just did a moment ago even. The power of prayer. And that's where they begin. And we've already seen that several times in Nehemiah, right? He's a man of prayer. We saw that so clearly back in chapter one. Nehemiah speaks to the God. And why wouldn't you? You think about that. The God of the universe, the God who created this little world that we live on, the God who from eternity past has existed there, or existed from eternity and, and throughout the history of as we know it, since time has been created, the one who holds the very world in his hands, we can go to him with our burdens, our requests. And so Nehemiah is, he's quite forceful in his prayer though. This is not a weak prayer. I don't know if you caught some of the things that he says. I mean, he's, he's basically saying, turn all that on them. And God, do not be gracious to them for what they did. I mean, these are really strong words in verses four through six. Uh, verses four and five especially. Um, where's, where's the virtue of grace in this? Now, why is Nehemiah so forceful in these? I mean, Okay, these guys are kind of nasty. They're trying to de- derail their, their work. But why? Why so, why so forceful in his prayer? It's an important point, isn't it? And that's actually, I mean, fairly close to what I was going to say. I mean, I agree with you, Bob. It, it's important to see that these people were not just opposing Nehemiah. It's not really about Nehemiah. 
they're opposing God. They're opposing the work of God. And so, in other words, Nehemiah is not upset with his ego. He's not like, oh, man, those guys are making me look bad. It's not that. It's not that Nehemiah is frustrated that, oh, man, he's going to make us more difficult. No, no. He's, he's given up really everything for this mission that God has put on his heart very clearly. And to Bob's point, this has been a mission God has given him. So he's gone, you know, I'm forgetting now. I think it was about 800, 900 miles before modern transportation. He's traveled a very long way. He's put everything on the line. And, uh, and so he's not concerned for his own ego. He prays in this way out of concern for God's work, this holy task that has been given to him. And this is not just any city, remember. This is not just any project. He's not building a fence for a guy, you know, to make a few bucks. I mean, this is, this is God's work. And uh, so I say, you know, as we look at these words, you know, as much as they might make us wince a little bit, there is a time and a place for these sort of prayers. But, What's the second thing they did? So he prayed, even prayed forcefully, but then what did he do? He got back to work. That's right. So he didn't pray and then go, God, go fix it. (laughs) Uh, God, you do all the work. Now there are times, and I would even say, and I was going to quote some Psalms, there are times when there is not much that we could physically do, but in this sense, there is. Go back and get to work. And so he does. He stayed busy in his work. Uh, Nehemiah's prayer, it shows so well that dependence on God, going to God in prayer, pouring out your heart before him, and then yet, being busy, being faithful, pressing on. So he's not sitting down idly, he he presses ahead. It's just a, a really powerful example for us as believers, really in any scenario, anything. Keep pressing on in the power uh, of God's spirit. So we get to verses seven through nine. And again, there is an escalation. So it's not just words anymore. It's not just nasty talk. It's not just criticism. The threat moves to really a more active attempt to undermine their work. They're sort of mobilizing militarily, probably not you know, like a whole army, but, but enough to sort of to cause fear and enough to, to unsettle. Because again, these, these guys are not soldiers. They're, they're workers. Um, and yet enough to sort of intimidate them and if they need to disrupt the work. And so that's basically the escalation that we're seeing here in verses 7 through 9. The question, though, what, what, might have, what might have delayed the attempt to stop the work? And sort of, I mean, we talked about how easy it is just to talk. That's part of it. But, but they are holding off a little bit. Do you notice that? The sort of, it says, you know, these guys, Tobiah uh, and, um, and Sembalot and the Arabs are, are coming around. They're sort of circling them a little bit, but they haven't quite moved in yet. Any thoughts on why that is? They could, they could overtake them, surely. At this point, they're kind of unawares. Remember, they have, Bob? Exactly. So Bob, he knows a lot about history. You guys know this about Bob. He reads all these journals, he gives them to me. I wish I had time to read them as much, Bob. I love them. This is, they have imperial verification to do this. It'd be like if the President of the United States said, you have my authority, thus forth go and do this. I don't care what local authorities say. I don't care what Buncombe County says. I don't care. You have the authority of the President of the United States, you know, the Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces of the United States, thus go forth and do it. And so they do. So that, that's, you realize why it was so important that he got this verification back in chapter one and chapter two was because of this. Bob, other thoughts?
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. These, and to, to Bob's point, he's making a good point. These kings, they have some power. They have some local clout. They have a little bit of military force, but these are not great grand kings. These are not emperors. They're, they still, they have to, they are subject in some way, and they have to reckon with a greater king, an uh, emperor like Artaxerxes further on. That's, that's really helpful, Bob. Thank you. Um, so now the workers are basically surrounded by their enemies, and what happens? Well, it basically takes its effect. They become afraid. They're seeing guys up on the hills. They're seeing people here. They're, they're having maybe guys are walking in and out of the town, you know, sort of you know, looking, looking tough and looking menacing in this way. And so it's, it's intimidation, but it's now physical intimidation. No swords have been drawn yet, um, and yet there is this intimidation there. There's a threat of violence. No longer just words, no longer just criticism. Um, and so there is this, this ex- escalation there. But look again at Nehemiah's response. Look at verse 9. And we prayed to our God, and we set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So he prays to God for God's protection, for his defense, and he takes practical measures. He's going to set some guys up to be physical protectors of the workers, of the welfare of the men, yes, but also so that the project would be able to carry on. And so there's a lot we could just really think about, just that one verse. Um, in verses 10 through 13, the external threat, again, is demoralizing the people. Some of them begin to wonder, maybe, maybe our critics were right. Maybe we can't do this. You know, it's, it's one thing to begin a project. It's another thing to finish it, right? <laughs> you know, I, I was just talking earlier about, you know, I've, I've got a 1978 Camaro, and uh, it's a project car. It was one thing for me to start as a project car. It's another thing for me to finish it. At 33 years old, I don't have time, money, or resources. And, and so it's, it, there it is sitting, right? You might, guys, you might have a half-finished project in your, you know, your workshop somewhere. I was at Mike DeWeese's house the other day, and he was showing me some things in his, in his thing. Oh, that's a project I was working on, this or that. Ladies, you might have projects. We, it's easy for us to start. Sometimes it's harder to finish, isn't it? And so, the just, so the, now they've got criticism setting in. They've got their own sort of um, difficulty in their own hearts as they try to finish this. And, um, and so they're, they're beginning to doubt that their morale is going down. So the critics, so the, the opponents are having their effect. But Nehemiah prays and he takes action. He stations these guards, he sets them up. And, and even we could look at some of the specifics. We don't have time but look at some of the specifics. He, he puts them together in their clans. So there's even sort of a civil, familial connection there that sort of girds them up a little bit. So even the way that Nehemiah does this, he's very smart. Um, he, he equips them with weapons, with swords, with spears, according to their clans. That's in verse 13. And so he's setting them up, and he is not going to back down. So you see the importance of leadership in that. Nehemiah, as this leader, he can't do all this on his own. He can't build this wall on his own, and yet the, the leadership there very important but look at verse 14 and i looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people do not be afraid remember the lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers your sons your daughters your wives and your homes you know words are powerful we saw at the beginning right words can tear down but words can also build back up. So as much as criticism can have its effect, gossip can have its effect, 
Opposition that is verbal can have its effect, and yet Nehemiah is using his words to help build back up. You know, one speech, I mean, just, just look throughout history. One speech can turn the tide in a war. One speech. One speech can unite a people. I mean, one speech, for good or for ill, can turn people's hearts. Words are very powerful. Yes, to tear down, but also to build up. And so Nehemiah here in this verse, now, and again, I'm sure Nehemiah said a lot more than this. We're getting like a condensed version. Maybe he talked for several minutes, but I mean, we're getting just basically the summary of it here probably. And so he gives this rousing speech and it stirs the hearts of the people in a really profound way. And so I'm going to end there and, and next week we'll basically see their response. How did they respond hearing his words, having now the action that, that he has given, having the leadership of Nehemiah here, and they're going to press forward in their mission. And um, the workers are going to step up, press ahead, and, uh, and that's it's exciting. God willing, we'll get to that next week in the, uh, basically the second half of chapter four. So there's a lot that we've looked at there. Other thoughts as we look at this? Questions? coming out of the text as we study it. Okay. Would anyone mind closing us in prayer tonight? Joy, would you mind closing us in prayer? Okay. Amen. God bless you. Have a good night.